Schultz, and you are listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 78, for the week of June 30th, 2021. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, June 30th, the moon is about 60% full and in the morning sky, rising around midnight. By the end of this week, Tuesday, July 6, the moon will be a thin crescent in our morning sky. Mercury will be at its greatest distance from the sun, as seen from the Earth, 22 degrees, on July 4th. This means it is placed in the morning sky. This is seen best from the southern hemisphere. The sun will be at aphelion on Sunday, July 4th. This happens each year on that date. We will be 94 million miles from the sun, and that's 152 million kilometers. At our closest to the sun in January of each year, we're 3 million miles closer. June 30th, 1908 is when the Tungusta event occurred. A piece of comet or an asteroid crashed to Earth in Siberia, Russia causing a large explosion and flattening trees for miles around. Every year on June 30th, Asteroid Day is held to remember the event and that the Earth is never safe from asteroids. M1, also known as the Crab Nebula, is a supernova remnant. It was first observed on July 4th in the year 1054 as a bright star, and this was the supernova. It was visible to the unaided eye for a few weeks and was as bright as Venus. In the 10 centuries since then, the dust and gases have expanded. Charles Messier observed it in 1758. When we see it now, it is larger in size than when Messier saw it. But let's get back to the year 1054, July 4th. The location of this object would be in the morning sky, about 10 degrees high at the beginning of dawn. The next morning, July 5th, the crescent moon passed by the supernova. In the more than 10 centuries since then, precession has changed the position of the Crab Nebula in relation to morning twilight because the sun is closer to the Crab Nebula now on July 4th than it was in 1054. Try it this week. Can you see the Crab Nebula on July 4th? Probably not, as it's too close to the sun to be seen. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, June 30th, through Thursday, July 6th? This week we have five zones. All you need to know is your latitude. 
North of 56 degrees north, you will not see it at all this week. Once again, not visible. From 50 to 56 degrees north, the International Space Station is in your morning sky. But not for the first few days of the week. Your first morning observation will be between July 1st and July 3rd. From 28 degrees through 50 degrees north, the ISS will be in your morning sky all week long, sometimes twice per night. For the equatorial regions, 30 degrees south to 28 degrees north, the ISS will not be visible at all this week. Further south, from 40 to 30 degrees south, the ISS will be in your evening sky, but only during the last few days of this week. And from 55 through 40 degrees south, the ISS will be in your evening sky all week long, sometimes twice per night. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. Periodic Comet 15P slash Finlay is now in our morning sky at about magnitude 10 or 11. It will be closest to the sun on July 13th at 0.99 astronomical unit, just inside our orbit. In fact, on July 23rd, it crosses the ecliptic at 1.0 astronomical units from the sun. If this does cause a meteor shower, it will be a few months from now. Periodic Comet Finley was discovered by W.H. Finlay, F-I-N-L-A-Y, of Cape of Good Hope, South Africa, on September 26, 18. 86. At discovery, the comet was magnitude 11. That's rather faint for a comet discovery at that time. When found, the comet was in the evening sky in the constellation Scorpius. Comet 15P Finlay is plotted on Podcast 78 Map 4 with dash marks for zero hours universal time. The positions, that is the right ascension and declination, are listed on Podcast 78, Comet Positions. You can also go to the website heavens-above.com and click on Comets to find where it is at that exact moment. An unusual comet has been found recently as part of the Dark Energy Survey. It is big, it is far away, and very likely you'll, you'll never see it. It is known as Comet 2014 UN271, Bernardinelli-Bernstein. Some are calling it Comet Burn Squared. It is presently 20 times farther from us than is the sun. It's near the orbit of Uranus, and it's coming in. It will be at its closest point to the sun on January 23rd, 2031, nearly 10 years from now. At that time, it will be 10 times farther from us than is the sun, as far away as the planet Saturn. At its present distance from the sun, it's, it's already showing cometary activity, 
So it seems to be a comet rather than a big asteroid. Although it is thought that some of these big objects beyond the orbit of Pluto, if they were brought close enough to the sun, they too would act like comets. The present estimate is that this comet is about 100 miles across. That's 160 kilometers. If that is true, this is the largest comet nucleus known by a factor of two. Where did this comet come from? Now that's interesting too. The comet came from the Oort cloud, a large reservoir of comets. And when it's done here, it's going back there. The comet came from about 40,000 astronomical units away. That is 40,000 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And when it goes back out, it will go as far as 55,000 astronomical units. All of this traveling takes time. It has taken 1.39 million years to get here from there. And when it goes back out again after 2031, it will be traveling for 2.2 million years. How bright will it get at perihelion? Now, how bright will this comet get when it's closest to the sun at perihelion in 10 years? Estimates range from 11 to 14th magnitude within reach of medium-sized to large amateur telescopes. I will talk more about it at that time in 2031, podcast number 574 or thereabouts, and supply a finder map so that you can go out and see it. In fact, a big comet, even though faint, might generate a lot of interest among the public. Speaking of interested public, now might be a good time to plan some public star parties. The pandemic is winding down and the world is opening up in many places. People are going out and about, so why not hold a star party? Presently, the planets are well-placed for viewing. Here are some sample dates for your star parties and what you can see. Typically, the planet Venus is best seen early in the evening, while Jupiter and Saturn get better as the night wears on. First, since Saturday, July 17th, a few weeks from now, Venus and Mars will be in the west, with Saturn rising around 9 p.m., followed an hour later by Jupiter. The moon will be up. It will be first quarter in the constellation Virgo. Now, the next weekend, Saturday, July 24th, this weekend, Mars is less well-placed, but Saturn and Jupiter rise a half hour earlier than last week. But the moon will be full between Jupiter and Saturn and will reduce contrast somewhat. July 24th is probably not a good weekend for a star party. The following weekend, July 31st, you have a dark, if you have a dark sky sight, this is the weekend for that star party. No moon, and you have Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter. The summer Milky Way is high in the sky. The following week, as we go into August, August 7th, there's still no moon because it's new this weekend. 
And you get Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, and the Milky Way. Oh, and perhaps a few early Perseid meteors. Now, the following week, Saturday, August 14th, you will have a 40% moon in the southern sky in Libra. Not quite first quarter. People do love seeing the moon through a telescope. Plus, you can show Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter. And some of the brighter Milky Way objects will show well, too. So there you have it, five weeks from mid-July to mid-August. You will have the planets Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn in your evening sky through November. And the moon for about 10 days each month, so you can schedule public star parties through most of the rest of this year. And speaking of the Perseids meteor shower, it peaks on Thursday morning, August 12th. The mornings before and after are good too. And this year, the moon will not be in the morning sky. We will discuss this more in detail as we approach early August. But you might want to start planning now for a star party to watch this popular meteor shower. I have never held a public star party for the Perseid meteor shower, but it can be done. This shower is best seen in the morning hours after midnight. I've found that almost no one wants to come out after midnight to look at the stars. A private star party is better, a small group of friends or family at your house for the whole night, knowing that many will call it a night and crawl into bed well before dawn. Way back in podcast 11 and 12, I discussed holding public star parties about the time they were being shut down due to the pandemic. Suffice to say, the steps required for holding a star party is to, one, find a place to hold it, two, set a date, three, get your fellow astronomers lined up to bring telescopes, and number four, announce it to the public. We used newspapers, radio, and flyers. You can use social media, too. Announce it to the schools, also. Every 3rd of July, Koufax, California, would hold their 4th of July celebration. They held it on the 3rd because it was easier to get a fireworks team on July 3rd than on July 4th. Us astronomers, for about 10 years, set up telescopes and astronomy displays for the whole day. Now, this was our longest star party, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. During the day, we had our handouts. We showed the telescopes and how they worked. And through the telescopes, we showed the sun and, if it was available, the moon and major planets. Sometimes we even show the star Cirrus in the daytime. As evening approached, we still showed the moon and planets, plus bright stars and a few other astronomical objects. Thousands of people attended. Hundreds stopped by to look through the telescopes. Those were good times. If you want to set up your telescope at your 4th of July celebration this year, you do have no moon to show. But you can show a rather small planet Venus and a rather faint and small planet Mars in the western sky as twilight descends. 
And then about an hour later, Saturn rises in the southeast. Now, Saturn's always a crowd pleaser. Jupiter rises about an hour after Saturn. Plus, you have a lot of summer Milky Way objects to show, too. Now for the astral class, how to use a telescope. I recall seeing a reflector telescope sitting in the corner of our science classroom in eighth grade. At that moment, the idea occurred to me that it might be possible for me to have my own telescope. I had been using my dad's binoculars for the past year, and so I asked myself, are you still interested in astronomy? Is that something you want to do? I came home that day, thought about it some more, and asked for a telescope for my birthday. On my 13th birthday, October 7th, 1965, I received my first telescope, a two-inch refractor from Sears. It was on an Alt azimuth mount and altogether cost my parents $20. I did not know it at that time, but Comet Ikea Seiki was in the evening sky, and not knowing about it, I did not see it. The telescope came with one eyepiece, giving it 75 power with a small field of view. The finder scope was a hollow tube, and this combination made it difficult to find things. My first two nights out with this telescope were frustrating. I did see the moon, but had trouble finding other things. I thought about giving up the hobby right there and then but consider the expense my parents went through to get me this telescope. So I thought it was only fair that I give this astronomy thing an honest shot. On my third night out, I turned it to the planet Saturn. It was surprised to see the rings, small but sharp. I called the family out and they looked too. I decided to stick with this new hobby for a while and the rest is history. The two complaints I hear from people not using their telescopes is, one, I cannot find anything with it, and two, I cannot focus on anything. Everything is fuzzy. At the Placer Nature Center in Northern California, I would hold a class each year on how to use your telescope. Everyone brought their telescope, or if they did not have one, they borrowed one of mine. I gave each student a 12-page handout, and we worked through it for that three-hour class. For the first half of the class, we were inside learning all about our telescopes. For the second half of the class, we were outside looking at things. Now, if you were here with me, at Stargazer Ranch, we could go through this and you would learn how to use a telescope. And in fact, that's one of the options you have when you come here to Arizona for a visit. A, how to use your telescope session. Just ask for it. This is a class for beginning astronomers. The class can have as many as 10 students and as few as one. This week in this podcast, I will explain how to use a telescope but it is better in person. 
Up through when we align the finder scope, we are working in the daytime while it is light outside. Only in the last part of this session will we be looking at astronomical objects. There are three main types of telescopes used by amateur astronomers these days. The first is called a refractor. It has a lens in the sky end, and light comes through the lens and exits at the back end where the eyepiece magnifies the image. This is the type that Galileo used around 1610. The next type of telescope is the reflector telescope. A mirror is in the back end of the telescope tube. It reflects the light back up through the tube where a smaller mirror called a diagonal sends the light out the side of the tube. That is where the eyepiece is placed and where you look through it. Sir Isaac Newton perfected this type of telescope. Finally, there is the schmidt cassegrain telescope. It has a lens in the front, a mirror in the back, and the light comes out the center of the back. That is where the eyepiece is placed to magnify the image. These telescopes are often housed in short tubes. The objective is the name for the lens or mirror that collects the light. It's also called the aperture. The larger it is, the more light is collected and the fainter you can see. Now starlight or moonlight is bent by the lens or reflected by the mirror to a point. The distance from the objective to the focal point is called the focal length. My 6-inch reflector has a mirror that's 6 inches across and the focal length of 48 inches, but they also have 6-inch reflectors that focus in 24 or 30 inches. The eyepiece is what determines the magnification. Change the eyepiece to change the magnification. Now normally, there's a number printed or engraved on the top or side of the eyepiece. That is the focal length of the eyepiece in millimeters. Popular focal lengths are 32 millimeter, 20 millimeter, 10 millimeter, and 6 millimeter. The smaller the number, the higher the magnification, and usually the smaller the field of view. So a 6 millimeter eyepiece has several times the magnification of a 32 millimeter eyepiece. Usually when we get started in astronomy, we want to use a wide field of view and a low magnification. So in this case, you would choose your 32 millimeter eyepiece, or if you have one, a 20 millimeter eyepiece for getting started with using your telescope. To determine the magnification, divide the focal length of the eyepiece into the focal length of the telescope's objective. For instance, for my 6-inch telescope with a 48-inch focal length, that 48-inch translates into 1,220 millimeters, 1,220 millimeters. How do I get that? I multiplied 48 inches by 25.4 to get millimeters. 
So that 20 millimeter eyepiece gives me 61 power. That's 1220 divided by 20. That same eyepiece in a different telescope would produce a different magnification. Low magnification is best for finding your way around the sky. So find your lowest power eyepiece, the one with the largest number stepped, st stamped on the eyepiece, and put that in your telescope eyepiece holder. One more thing about the telescope tube, and that is the finder scope. This can be anything from a small refractor telescope to a hollow tube to a finder which projects a red dot into the sky. The finder is attached to the main telescope tube and it helps you to find things. It has a wider field of view than your telescope and it helps you to find things for your main telescope. Guess what? The finder is probably not aligned to your main scope. So we are going to align the finder in the daytime. Finder scopes have set screws that can be adjusted to change their aim. So actually, we're aligning the finder scope to match the main scope. With your low power eyepiece in your main scope, point your main scope towards a distant object, such as a mountaintop, a distant treetop or telephone pole or a building. Now that you have something in your main scope, focus your main scope eyepiece so that the image is sharp. Then we go over to the finder scope and align it using the set screws so that it is pointing at the same object as the main scope. This might take some time, but it is important to get it right. Everything may appear upside down and backwards too. Don't be concerned about that. That's what happens with telescopes. After the object is centered in the finder scope, look through the main scope again to make sure it has not moved while you were aligning. Now you are ready for a night of observing. One set of targets you might want to use is from our binocular list from last week. Print, print that out from Podcast 77 and observe those objects through your telescope. Next week, I'll discuss radio astronomy. This week, let's become familiar with the constellation Opaeucus. North of Scorpius, south of Hercules, this is technically the 13th zodiac constellation as the sun and planet spend some time in this constellation, between the short time it passes through Scorpius and the long time it spends in the boundaries of Sagittarius. But you'll never hear anyone say, I was born under the sign of Opiochus. This constellation is identified on Podcast 78, Map 3, and it is high in our evening sky. The globular clusters M10 and M12 are also plotted on this map. See if you can see both with the unaided eye. The binocular challenge this week and our telescope challenge are these two globular clusters in the constellation Ophiuchus. They are M10 and M12, both in the Charles Messier catalog.
They're plotted on Podcast 78, Map 3. M10 is magnitude 6.7 and 9 arc minutes in size. M12 is about the same, magnitude 6.8 and 8 arc minutes in size. Both should be visible in binoculars as fuzzy, out-of-focus stars. Give this a try. With a telescope, I go for M12 first. M12 is not quite round. It appears box-like and angular. Increase the magnification and take a look at its core. M10 is only 3.2 degrees away from M12. M10 will appear more round than M12. And you'll have more trouble resolving the center because it's more compact than M12. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? The moon is in our morning sky, giving us a dark evening sky for a cluster in nebula. Learn the constellation Ophiuchus and see M10 and M12. Comet Finlay is in our morning sky. And plan some star parties. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episodes number 78 for June 30th, 2021. I'm Don Mockles. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockles.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. That is where you find our handouts and maps. You can contact me at donTheAstronomer at gmail.com. Once again, that's donTheAstronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will discuss what's up in the sky. We have a conjunction coming up with Mars and Venus. We'll talk about radio astronomy. And we'll find more globular clusters in our evening sky. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.